0: 8 is where we're going to begin. We'll read through 15. And as they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God from among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, I was um, about in middle school, I think, and I was with one of my best friends. His name was John. John. We lived in the same neighborhood. We were not just neighborhood friends, but we were best friends. And so we often would hang out Um, in the days. There was this field near our neighborhood where we were hanging out this day. We were there hitting golf balls like to a certain spot. We were competing. Uh, That's what you do. You see who can hit it to the closest spot in this field. We weren't going to go to a golf course. Um, and besides, we we're just middle schoolers. So we're using um, what would probably be just like a short wedge, sometimes a mid iron to try and do this. Now, John's a lefty and I'm a right handed player. We didn't have John's clubs with us. Um, and he only had to borrow his dad's. So he had my clubs. And so we had right handed clubs, but John was still up for the challenge. That's the kind of guy he was. And so we're hitting and we're um, just um, kind of goofing around. Um, and so then being the kind of friend and guy that I am, I asked John, hey, why don't you take a driver and see how far you can hit that? Well, good idea, right? Except that just past the edge of this field was this highway um, that on the other side of that highway then was a car lot. So John takes the challenge, right? He uh, winds up, takes a really solid hit. And on that day, he caught all the golf ball. That ball goes flying up in the air, takes one hop right in the middle of the road, next hop into the car lot, immediately, John and I, down to the ground. (laughs) We're in a field. This is not a golf course. Grass is up high. We're down on the ground. Golf club's down there with us. We regroup. What are we going to do? And so there we are on the ground. We're thinking, oh, no, we have to get out of here, and we need to do that fast. We somehow managed to collect the golf clubs, We army crawl, not making this up, army crawl through the field to the edge of the bushes. We stand up where the bushes give us cover. We sprint towards my house. Golf clubs go in this humongous bush. We proceed then to go into my garage and we empty it out of all golfing paraphernalia. (laughs) We wanted to be sure that if the police came and they said, do you play golf? We were prepared to say no. All of the golf clubs went into this large bush by my house. We went into the backyard. There's this row of trees. We had built a tree house there. We had great lookouts all over the place. We were there for hours. Hours. We were looking around. We were hiding. I remember feeling on that day terrified. Uh, I remember feeling ashamed, confused, confused. There's a funny video on YouTube that really gives you a picture, kind of how I felt that day. It's a video, not of people, but of a dog. Um, It's an owner who has discovered the dog's done something they weren't supposed to, and they decided to video this. It's fantastic. Check out. This is how I felt. All right, well, apparently while I was out, somebody got into the kitty cat treats. Now... I gotta go look at the suspects. Suspect number one. Was it you, Macy? Let's see your face. Did you do this? Did you? I don't think you did. Number two. Did you do this? Denver, did you do this? Denver, was this you? Denver, you won't look at me. Did you? What? Denver, did you do this? Look at me. Come here. Felt like Denver on that day. (laughs) Totally terrified and ashamed, I hid in the trees. What is that impulse that we have to hide our face when we know that we've done something wrong? I wonder if you've ever thought about your own life, even as I was telling that story. You began to think of a situation for you where you had done something you shouldn't have done. And you started to hide. And you started to uh, immediately have this impulse to try to hide. We share that with one another. We have this um, immediate impulse to try and hide. And we see that picture in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. When we do wrong, we often just immediately think we want to hide. And on that day when I was hitting... Golf balls, I hid in a row of trees, much like Adam and Eve. But listen, that's not the only way I've ever hidden in my life. I've hidden in many other ways in my life, and I bet that you have as well. Sometimes the ways that we hide look more like blaming other people. Because if we can get the attention to somebody else, then it will no one will look at us. And so we'll point other directions and blaming others. Other times we'll just isolate ourselves. We'll isolate ourselves by not actually showing up where we're supposed to be or with people, but we can also isolate relationally. You can be in the same room with somebody, but isolate yourself and hide using humor, using sarcasm, using anger as ways to hide and create distance. You can change the subject and be uh, just... A, Someone who's always misdirecting and uh, trying to create a distraction, you will deny. We often pretend that it wasn't um, something that we needed to be um, guilty of. We'll rationalize that whole process of rationalizing that it was okay for us to do that. We'll try and convince ourselves that things were all right, that it wasn't as bad. And then we'll even go so far as to try and convince other people that if somebody else did something similar to what we did, that that would be okay, because then we'd hope if they found out we did that, that that would be okay. Did you follow that? You did, because you've done it. (laughs) We hide a lot of different ways, and it doesn't have to be complicated. Sometimes it's as simple as hiding our eyes and just looking at the ground. Other times it's as complicated as being the psychological ninja that we try to be and outsmarting everybody else. Nonetheless, you know what it feels like to hide, to hide your face, to turn your face away when there's a when there's something you've done wrong. But here's the problem with that. The problem with our desire to hide is it doesn't work. The problem when we hide is we know it doesn't work. It didn't work in the garden, and it doesn't work for us. We can't actually hide. By the way, John and I came out of hiding eventually. We knew the owner of that car lot. He lived in our neighborhood. And so, thankfully, there was no damage done to any cars on that day. But nonetheless, hiding doesn't work. You maybe have learned this at a young age, just like a toddler tries to hide their face and they think there's no one else in the room. You know, I'm the only one in here right now. It doesn't work. At some point we realize that hiding doesn't work. But we still have this impulse to try it. And that's why I think because we know what that feels like, what the passage that we experience today is so good for us. Because it plants for us this seed uh, that will grow into something wonderful, a picture of the heart of our father. And so as this develops and as we see this take shape, I'm so thankful that we have this truth in God's word to go to. Because as we have this impulse to hide, we can look at a scripture just like this and we can find truth for our lives today. So let's look again in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, if you've ever picked up the Bible and thought, I'm going to read this thing, and you started at the beginning, you might have made it to this passage. You might have made it so far as chapter 3. If you've not done that before, let me tell you a quick summary of where we are. In the beginning is, is a story of God creating all that was. Is God creating the earth and the garden and Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, and God creates them with a purpose and creates a place for them to live, creates this wonderful uh, relationship that he has with them and gives them uh, both a purpose and also boundary. Don't eat from this tree. And we saw that in our passage that we read. They did mess up. They disobeyed. Over time, somehow, in some way, their trust in what God said began to decline. They began to question what God said being right or not and made a decision to choose for themselves and they chose sin. And so now they are hiding from God and that's where we are in this passage in chapter 3, verse 8. Let's look again. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Even the opening of this passage reminds us that it is a sound that stirs them, uh, that causes them to hide, that makes them try and retreat away. Why is that sound so important? That same phrase, the sound of the Lord God, is something we see over and over and over again in the Old Testament where it's actually telling us that we need to hear the sound or the voice of God if we are to obey Him. And so for Adam and Eve, what they were hiding from was in fact the very thing that they were supposed to be obeying. This sound is a reminder of what they have done wrong and they hid because they had disobeyed. Look in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? You know, Even the very first words that God speaks to fallen mankind. You might expect it to be different than that. It's a question. Where are you? We might expect that God kind of charges on the scene in this thunderous way and just earth-shakingly says, Come out! Maybe you've thought, Yeah, try and hide. And He just torches the garden. It's like, nice try. We may expect that that's how God comes out, but look at, the way, look at what He says. He says, Where are you? Even though we may expect a thunderous entrance by God, it is His kind question. That draws Adam out. This one question to draw. Where are you? This is something we don't want to miss. Everyone in this room who has this impulse to hide needs to see this question. Everyone in this room who's ever hidden needs to know that this is what God will approach us with. The same question. Where are you? It is God's kindness that draws us to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. God's kindness draws us out of hiding and leads us into repentance. And this is a marker right from the very beginning of the heart of God in a passage so important for all of us in this room. Don't miss this if you're ever tempted to hide. We often feel that God's heart is something else and God's heart, true in Scripture, is that He is seeking after those that are lost those that are hiding in shame, God is seeking after us as a Father who wants to draw us into right relationship with Him. And yet, we are still scared. Scared to step out of hiding, afraid of what that might mean for us. And so in verse 10, we see that we share that fear even with Adam. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so often, this is the case for us. We're afraid. Afraid of the consequence, most certainly. Afraid of what might happen if people find out, what others might think of us, what um, we might begin to experience because of what we've done wrong. But it's so much deeper, friends. Sometimes we're afraid of what we might feel about ourselves, too. And so we continue to hide. We're afraid. But God asked this question so long ago, and it's the same God that wants to ask a question to you today. Where are you? Where are you? It's a question of invitation for you. God is asking, where are you? Their response in fear was to start to blame. You know, those verses that follow. Adam says it was Eve. Eve says it was the serpent. God's not distracted or fooled by any of that. God keeps track with what His purpose is. And while that penalty, while the consequence that came from that was heavy, that happens in the verses that go on past where we read in verse 15. Yes, that's heavy. But what was to be expected was death. In chapter 2, if you ate from that tree, you were to expect death. And that life is actually sustained throughout the penalty that is given. What might be expected is that shame is something that that should cause them to continue to hide, but the heart of the Father is one where He provides a covering for their shame. This is a picture of the heart of our Father. And that's why we're in this passage today. Because we get to see right from the very beginning a story that unfolds throughout all of Scripture. A story that God has started from the beginning and He continues throughout His Word. This is a story that we see right here in the beginning of Genesis. And so that's really why we are looking and stopping at verse 15. Before we get to verse 15, though, verse 14 is one that I want to mention just briefly. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. The reason I wanted to mention this verse is because we read that and we begin to think, that quite literally that is why snakes don't have feet um, and that we read this as a biology lesson and then it makes us doubt the whole creation account uh, as a whole because we know that snakes don't eat dust. And so, like, this is not a biology lesson. I just would say um, that's not what this is intended to be. If it were a biology lesson about why snakes slither and don't have feet, then we would also have to assume that they eat dust. And that's that was not, like, as ancient as the writer is. That is not something that they were intending right there. In fact, the way that it is written, and there's so much behind this, but let me just summarize to say the writer's intention is to be expressing two facts that have to do with humiliation and subjugation. Humiliation and subjugation. That's what that is about. That is not a biology lesson, so I just wanted to make sure we saw that and it didn't trip you up right before we got to verse 15, because verse 15 is where we're, where we're going to focus in. Verse 15 says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So much has been made of this verse over history. It's quite an important verse. And while we have the advantage of all of Scripture to give us some insight into this verse, and Adam and Eve did not, that creates a little difference in the way that we look at it. However, we are going to spend time looking at it A little bit from their perspective, but mostly from ours. From their perspective, you read that and we know that there's a rich history that unfolds throughout all of Scripture. They did not. But it doesn't mean that the point is lost. The point for Adam and Eve in that moment, and certainly we see this is true for Eve, is that hope would be given in the midst of a time that felt hopeless. Hope would be given where things felt that they were all lost and it was all gone. We know that that took hold in Eve's heart because in chapter four, as her firstborn um, comes into the world, she says, I did this with the help of the Lord. And so she's already seeing that God wants to do something through her offspring. And so most certainly we know that somewhere along the way, that statement from God planted hope in her heart. And I think that's the idea of what happens here in verse 15, that when things feel lost, God has a plan. And wants us to hope for that plan. For Eve, what that meant is that even as she was bearing her first child, she believed that the story's not over. It's not done. There's more to it. God has a plan. It was hope that God's not finished. And it was that hope that God planted in the garden that day. That drop of hope which then grows into something beautiful that we get to see. From our vantage point of all of Scripture. You see, when we read Genesis, we begin to see how it fosters this expectation for someone who would save a Messiah. Genesis creates this foundation, this expectation of a Messiah that would come. And then all of the prophets throughout the Old Testament who would foretell about Jesus and his coming would build upon that foundation. And we get to see that and we find here in verse 15 of chapter 3, the very beginning. Of that hope. What a cool verse. We can read and understand now from our vantage point that the serpent really represents all of sin and death and evil, and that the offspring of Eve would point to the coming offspring of Mary. You see, Jesus, born of a virgin, fits this unique descriptor that we have here in the text, that quite literally the way it reads is that the seed of woman. The seed of woman, that's a phrase typically used for men, not often for women. You can understand why the seed of woman, the offspring there is what they are looking for. Only Jesus fits that description. And so we know from our vantage point that only Jesus could fit the description of what's given here, that the Messiah by his unique birth would be intended to fit God's plan all together and that. Certainly, Adam and Eve wouldn't see that. We would not expect them to from their vantage point. But because we can, this verse points for us to something that is a part of a bigger picture in the Bible, a bigger story. It points to Jesus. It points to Jesus as the one that would come to save. And so then we look in our Bible and we say, Jesus came and we find what's called the New Testament in our Bible. And that happens. I just opened here. This is to Mark. That's the New Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. about this far through your Bible, and it's mostly towards the end. Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, right at the beginning of the New Testament. Tell about Jesus. If you've not read those, they're fantastic. Uh, we'll spend some time in them together over the next few weeks. But, you know, if you have a Bible and I hope you do, that there's a lot of pages after that. There's more after Jesus. There's a lot more in the New Testament that tells about a story that continues. And in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, we see that the New Testament has more to say about this story. In verse 20 of chapter 16, it says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is the promise for Christ, uh, for the church through Christ And it points all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The same image, the same idea. And then if we go all the way to the very end of your New Testament, to the book of Revelation, and almost all the way to the end of that book, in chapter 20, right towards the very end of our Bibles. We started at the beginning, all the way to the very end. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, there is a... uh, There's a description of the final defeat of Satan and that before the great white throne of God, all are judged. And that is the completed work that God has planned. His story is not finished and we find ourselves in that story. We are in that story. We may have thought that this was something long ago, but we discover today we're living in this story, what started in Genesis. We are living in this. We are a part of this. God still wants to do something through our waiting. God still wants to do something through our participation. And perhaps what he desires to do in us is not too different than what his call was to Adam and Eve so long ago. His heart to draw us out of hiding into a right relationship with himself. So that through that right relationship with himself, we might discover that guilt where it demands death, God brings and provides a sacrifice so that we may find life. There's a really cool picture of that that happens in Genesis it's a different sermon for a different day. But when shame would have us hiding as it did for Adam and Eve, God desires for us not to hide in our shame, but covers our shame with the death of His Son Jesus. We have life in Christ. We know this in our scriptures in places like John 3, chapter 16, or chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then the next verse, for God did not send his son Jesus into this world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We have this promise now. We have this promise in Jesus now, this promise of life in Christ. And yet we also are reminded of what is yet to come. What is yet to come in the return of Jesus, in the final scene in Revelation 20. And so we find ourselves in the middle of something that is true now and not yet fully realized. We find ourselves in a place where we have to wait. But I already talked about how we don't like to wait. And so I had to rethink that here at the end of our message. What I started to realize was that even though I don't like to wait, I do. And I will. Even for a restaurant, which is what I started with, right? Even for a restaurant. Even as much as I don't like to, I was in Charleston not too long ago, Charleston, South Carolina, with my family. All of my family. Three kids, one of which is mini-me, kid, tiny, uh, toddler, terror. You get it, right? Crazy. You don't want to wait, but we did. We waited at a restaurant to eat. Why? Why? Because that restaurant was incredible. The food was great. The food was great. Like fats. uh, uh, If you work at fats. Like the soup. Fantastic. Sorry. But we were going to wait. Because the food was fantastic. If you've ever been to a theme park. And you've been with me. You know I will stand in a two hour line. For a great roller coaster. I will do it. And I will do it not like. Sad about it. Like, I'm pretty excited. So, I began to see something about myself. I wonder if you see it in you. It's really cheesy. Okay? If it's great, it's worth the wait. I warned you. Okay? I warned you that was cheesy. But it is true. If it's great, it's worth the wait. We find that that is true in our lives. We'll wait for things that are fantastic. So, the question is do you believe that Jesus is great? Do you really believe that God's plan is great? Is that something that's taken hold in your heart and you believe that? If so, what's your posture as you are waiting? How are you waiting? Are you bored? Are you totally checked out? Because if you are, I don't I don't actually think you believe what's coming is great. What's your posture as you wait? Here's the question for you to consider. What if you waited? What if you waited with that same anticipation that a child has for Christmas morning like you had this great news to share inside and you couldn't hardly sit still what if that's how you waited for God to fulfill his ultimate purpose in Jesus Christ what if you waited for Jesus the way a child waits for Christmas you and I are part of God's story right in the midst of a time where we are asked to wait and here's the reality that we need to understand. You can wait while you're hiding. You can wait while you're hiding. Or you can wait with, a, with an anticipation of what is to come. Either way, He's returning. Either way, Jesus is coming. Let's pray. Father, we do wait. We do wait for your son Jesus and the glory that is to be expected in his return we wait for you to work in our lives in a way that you are pleased we wait with expectation and hold it in our hearts in such a way that God would you weave that together to be attractive to the world in which we live we put all of our hope in Jesus we put all of our hope in you So may our waiting be worship. May the anticipation that we have be something that is attractive to our neighbors and that would draw them to understand who you are and your heart for them. Would you work in us, in your community, in your world, for your sake and for your kingdom. Amen.